Hello and welcome to Inside Writing, the Faber Academy podcast. My name is George Miller, and this is the fourth in our series of podcasts. Unlike its predecessors, this one was not recorded at the Faber Academy in the heart of Bloomsbury, but at my home in Bath, as my two guests in this programme also live in the West. The aim behind these podcasts is simple. If you're a writer struggling to get started, overcome a particular hurdle, or reach the finishing line, we hope these conversations will give you practical advice, suggestions for reading, and encouragement to help you make progress. And just as important, we hope they'll make entertaining listening, and remind you that all writers come up against obstacles from time to time. In each podcast, we'll tackle a specific theme and focus the discussion around a text chosen by my guests, which you can read before or after listening to the programme. The theme for this podcast is writing historical fiction, and both my guests are accomplished practitioners of the genre. Maria McCann is the author of three historical novels to date. As Meat Love Salt and The Wilding, both of which are set in the 17th century, and most recently, Ace King Knave, in which Maria ventures into the 18th century of whores, gamblers and grave robbers, in a novel Hilary Mantel described as being like Hogarth sprung to life. Elizabeth Speller began her writing career as a classicist and author of non-fiction, and also distinguished herself as a poet. She published her first historical novel in 2010. The Return of Captain John Emmett is a mystery set in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, and the first volume in a trilogy. It was followed by The Strange Fate of Kitty Easton, and Elizabeth is currently working on the final volume set in the 1930s. Most recently, she published At Break of Day, set in 1916 on the Somme, and described by The Independent as an absorbing and elegantly written novel which traces the stories of four very different young men. The book we chose to frame our discussion is Peter Carey's 1998 novel, Jack Maggs, which the New York Times reviewer called a wondrous, sly, Dickensian swirl of a novel. Dickensian, because the career of Jack Maggs, recently returned to Victorian London from Australia, contains more than a passing resemblance to that of Abel Magwitch in Great Expectations. But sly, because of the many ways in which Carey's novel parts company with its predecessor, not least in its portrayal of ambitious young writer, journalist and mesmerist, Tobias Oates, who both is and is not Dickens. Parallels and discrepancies abound in a novel that is resolutely not a pastiche of Dickens. I began by asking Elizabeth, and first Maria, for their reactions to the book. There's so much I enjoy in it, but the thing that draws me to Peter Carey generally is his interest in the underdog there are some English novelists who seem to write almost entirely about the upper middle class and I really enjoy the fact that he has a tender regard um, for people who are of humble origins or have made a dreadful mess of their lives. Uh, he's interested them in, in a very intimate way, just as, you know, as Hardy's interested in people who've made a dreadful mess of things. So Carey is. And it's very Australian as well, I think, because he doesn't allow him to suffer the same fate. He becomes disillusioned with this project of having a real English gentleman, and he goes, I hope I'm not spoiling it for people, but I'm not, because this doesn't matter, really. It's just a wonderful book. He goes back to Australia, and he doesn't die. Hurrah! <laughs> and it is insulting. I think, I think I've seen Peter Carey on record somewhere as saying, as an Australian, it really galled him. And the only thing this successful man who dragged himself up by his bootstraps in a terrible beginning, the only thing that he could think of um, was to keep a promise in England and to have a real English gentleman. And actually, I did this, I did great expectations for my 
O-levels, you know, back in the dark mist of time. And even then, it offended me as well. Um, I remember thinking, you're an idiot, you know, you're buying completely... I couldn't have put it like that, but I had a feeling he was buying into a system that had never done him any good. My main interest... I wanted to sit back at one point and think, if you hadn't read Great Expectations, if you hadn't read any Dickens at all, would the book still stand? And I, th- I think that's quite important because mm. you know it's fine if if you you know that that's the sort of background you're reading it from. How would you, how would you describe its relationship with Great Expectations? Well, part of the process of that thinking was to try and think that establish that mm. it's I a mean, revenge for Great um, Expectations. It's an immensely humane humane book. I mean, mm. it, it, it's heart twisting. Um, I mean, to start mm. off with, I. I was thinking, well, clearly this is great expectations, and you know, okay, well, is this is this very interesting? Is it actually going to be sort of pastiche? And then, about three chapters in, you begin to realise it's going to be much more than that. And then, of course, he gives you starts giving you the blows. You think, oh, it's great expectations, and this magwitch. And then, no, this isn't this isn't quite how that was. Um, and actually, the more you know about Dickens, or the more you know about that book, the more you realise the departures. So then, it's quite hard to get back to. <laughs> How you know? How do you? What makes you think it is great expectations? I mean, he's he's very he's quite slippery. Yes. I, I, I slightly knocked you off course, I think, Lizzie, mm. because you were talking about whether knowing great expectations was a was a really fundamental part of enjoying it as a novel, or whether you could enjoy it as someone who hadn't read Great Expectations. Well, I think that would be to me that would be quite important that you could, if it's if if, if mm. it's to be a, a substantial novel, it's got to be able to be read. By itself, and and certainly you could you could absolutely <laughs> relish the, yes. the the detail mm. and the period and, and everything, but if you have a Dickens and you had great expectations, mm. then it's it's something else. I think. Mm. Yes, I, I agree totally. It stands up entirely by itself, but it's more enjoyable if if you know great expectations. I really enjoyed the energy of it. There's a really strong forward momentum to it, and I I was sort of struck by his his very short paragraphs and. On a, a number of occasions, he describes characters as, as sort of having an inner heat, um, you know, like like furnaces. And I had this great sort of sense of, you know, perhaps related to what you were saying, Maria, about sort of sense of injustice. And 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 Jack Maggs himself is, you know, sometimes sort of mm. suffused with this great sort of this mm. sort of heat of, of of rage. And that that for me, you know, was a sort of driving force in in the book. I think his reversal in in and and, and and exactly what we were just saying about um, he's not very sympathetic to the established middle and upper middle classes. Mm. I mean, um, Oates is clearly not a sympathetic character. <laughs> Pips is largely absent, um, and so you do you do get this. Buckle is, I think, a very sympathetic character. Somebody who's lost mm. between the two in 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 some ways. In some it's ways, com- it's complex. <laughs> and yet he goes off at the end, doesn't yes. he? He goes off. He changed mm. actually. That that was that was quite mm. an odd sort of transition there. Yes, I think I think what gets to him is sexual jealousy in the end, isn't it? But up till then, I, I was really fasc- quite fascinated by him because he he is quite noble in a way. But but the one th- the the one thing that I suppose strikes uh, prepares you for what happens in the end is that he does rescue Mercy Larkin from prostitution um, at the hands of her mother. But eventually, and we're not shown this, she becomes his mistress. Mm. But 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 that happens um, over time, and we don't actually see it. It's already happened when we meet them, and she's grown up. She's still living with him. I, actually, the, there was one place that I marked that I'd I'd like to read from, if that's okay, um, because it's about him, and it's a, a quite um, revealing little discussion. Maybe we should say Percy Buckle 
used to be a, a fried fish vendor and yes. then he was a grocer yes. and then he's inherited so he's really sort of gone up in in the world and yes. and that leads to all sorts of yes. comedy and an uncertainty yes, that's right he's um spent many years rising from fried fish merchant or, or seller vendor with a little tray um, to be a grocer and then suddenly inherits all this money and a house in great queen street um but tobias oates who um is the character who is most like charles dickens himself um mesmerizes people as um dickens himself did and he has mesmerized jack mags and um, revealed uh, in front of various people that he is a returned convict from new south wales and everybody is very frightened of him so there's a discussion that follows while while mags is still under the fluence um, there's a conversation which goes as follows between dickens and his family i see toby that you have brought a very dangerous man into your family's presence he will not wake up until I release him, Lizzie. Don't you see what I now possess? A memory I can enter and leave, leave and then return to. My goodness, my gracious, what a, a treasure house, eh, Buckle? You can hear the cant in his talk. He has it cloaked in livery, but he wears the hallmarks of New South Wales. You cannot keep him here, cried Lizzie. It's not some nasty hand you can store in a bottle. I will visit him in prison. With respect, young sir, said Percy Buckle. Yes, Mr Buckle, I am very aware, sir, that it is a privilege for me to be... Now, Mr Buckle, come, come. I don't mean to embarrass you, sir, and I am grateful to have been called to witness such an unusual experiment. Mr Buckle, but in my opinion, sir, and it seems that I differ from you here... Please continue. We do ourselves no credit in judging him. Oates snorted. Did you not see his back, man? I should add here that um, he, Jack Maggs bears the marks of the whip. He is a scoundrel. Well, we saw a page of his history, said the little grocer stubbornly. Whatever his offence, anyone with half a heart can see that he has paid the bill. I could not send him back for more. I'm sure you don't wish to return with him to your household. Mr Buckle became silent. To be robbed? Or murdered in your bed? Percy Buckle brought his mild eyes up to meet those of the young hosts. He has not hurt me yet. And the, the conversation goes on quite a bit further, and Percy Buckle, I think, comes up, uh, off very well here, particularly when you realise that he rep he um, deeply respects Tobias Oates. He is honoured, astonished, dazzled by the fact that this character has come to visit him. But here he will, he will stand up for mags against him. And he's really impressive, but towards the end... In that sense, that's why I think that Buckle's perhaps the only character who slightly disappoints me at the end of the book, because I think he's beautifully developed. Somebody's mm. astride, has, has, uh, still has aspirations in the middle and educated classes, and, and yet he's honest mm. and truthful to his roots, which he's not trying to cover up. He's, he's delighted mm. to have the money and will say so. Mm. And benevolent. Um, and benevolent. Mm. This book is such a tour de force. If someone is setting out perhaps to write their first historical novel or is perhaps stuck and wondering how to go forward with a book that they're writing, in a way, is it almost setting the bar too high to be the kind of book that you can learn from? Or do you think there are things that you can learn from if you're, if you're just setting out? If you took out the, the oh, you can't exactly take out the, the relationship with great expectations, what he does beautifully is he never makes you feel you're being told stuff. Um, you know, I've done this research, I know this, these mm. things, and here are the fruits of my laborious <laughs> days. And, and I think that's the, the single biggest mistake people writing a story, fiction or actually 
some very famous authors I can think of who I've read in the last six months. Um, where there's a whole dump of, um, I'm not wasting any of, any of my time in the British Library or on the internet mm. or whatever. Um, mm. It's just beautiful. You, you're there. Mm. there, are, there are wonder, I mean, one, one scene that really sticks in my memory is when the six-year-old Mags is sent down a chimney oh, for the oh, first yes. time because he's he's mm. because he's small. He can get down the chimney and he can mm. open the door so that the, so that Silas Smith can can get in and rob the house. And just the the way he describes that, you know, he's he's now an older man and he's thinking back to when he was mm. six and the experience of being it's thrust down a chimney. And it's it's done in the in a page. And it, I thought it was just yes, fantastic. Yes, yes. And yet you wouldn't say that's sort of the result of historical research. Um, just imagining what it's like to go down. Uh, mm. I mean, I thought of the water babies. Where you have, yes, the, yes, the, you can't help it. Can I, you? I'm yes, sure he means. Yes. I'm sure he means. What, yes. want to think about the water babies mm. because because uh, that's the other thing. I think he he does go into other novels, mm. other Victorian novels. But but it, yes, you're just there. And but, but there are tiny, tiny little moments. Like I think it's Mag's mother who lifts the lid on a on a saucepan on the stove, and a pig snout. Because there's a lot about off on yes. a pig snout sort of rises up, and again, it was just such a beautiful image. It didn't seem forced, and yet it was such an arresting image. And it's just yes, there's great precision, isn't there? Um, great visual and, and sensory mm. precision. I, th I think you're absolutely right about not loading it with. I mean, this this is one of my great temptations and battles. Um, the research, you know, trying to keep it back and keep it relevant because you think oh, this is such a fasc you know fascinating fact. Everybody in the world should know this. They really should. It, it's really. I think it's incredibly hard not to do it. Mm. Um, and I, I I read a book recently where say a well-known author and there was a whole a whole chunk of information dropped on a page and I thought gosh I'm amazed his editor didn't tell him to mm. ease this out more you know sort of let, let the story absorb it um, and then I'd actually sat next to him at a dinner and we were talking and he said oh I would never use an editor copy editor yes uh -huh. I wouldn't have anyone edit my book <laughs> and I thought mm. no um and it was a great good book but um there were these great chunks mm. it could have been he yet should have been saved from himself mm. yeah. um Maybe we could go back to first principles, and you could just tell me a bit about the the attraction of the particular periods that you write about. What was it that drew you to them in the first place? Well, I started writing in the um, about the seventeenth century, and I think what drew me to it was the terrific um, conflict and the struggle of different versions of of right, uh, religion, politics, all of that. It was such a, a rich mix. Um, what happened was um, that a friend had offered to lend me one of the books of Christopher Hill before she did so, before I could actually take it from her. She died unexpectedly. Um, she had told me that she would love, I would love this book, and I um, went to her funeral and to her house. The book was there on a shelf, and I asked her husband if I could take it away with me as a keepsake because she had wanted me to read it, and he was very glad to let me have it. So I read that book in a state of emotional turmoil, and I think it had a particular effect. And she was quite right. I, I did um, enjoy it and I was fascinated by it, but it was suffused with mourning. Um, and I think the first book is a very, very sad book. Um, it's about loss. It's a different kind of loss from my own personal loss. There's something about a kind of serendipitous blend, I think, of the ideas in a century and your own emotional condition and everything else that's going on around you at the same time which draws you towards, I'll write about that period. When I started writing, some of it was about about loss or melancholy. Um, and I know I have friends who say, oh, but you know, you're really, you're very funny. Can't you write a book that's a bit, 
that's a bit funny or, or but all your books are terribly sad um, or, or violent Somebody, um, a couple of my friends said oh, you know, something that's very violent and I think I don't even swat a fly and I used to be passionate member of CND <laughs> so actually why is this happening but clearly um, it is it is something that I was attracted to do mm. Lizzie you write about the, the earlier decades of the 20th century yes I, I did that because it just interested me because it's both close but actually the more you look at it quite a long time behind us I mean so it, it, most of us are grandparents or great grandparents but I like the fact that it that actually attitudes and, and society changed and of course the great war changed society hugely and so you know if you like your characters to be in jeopardy <laughs> the first world wars is, is, a, is a sort of community jeopardy um, but periods of change I mean I Funny enough, I, I do. I like the the eighteenth century. is is fascinating because of, of of faith and and illusion and and I think it's the same thing really of of what happens to people under stress. What will they do? How do they reinvent themselves? You know, who takes opportunities out of difficult situations? Um, who thrives? But I, I mean, I don't rule out. There are certain periods I'm slightest bit interested in writing about Tudors. I, I read classics. I'm not interested in writing a novel set in ancient Rome, no, no, which I could no, do. No. I mean, technically, I, I I have the knowledge to do it. I love the period. It doesn't, doesn't interest me to write about. Moving into the 18th century, which is what I'm writing about now, you get a very different kind of feeling. There's much more about middle-class society, ideas of civility and ease and courtesy, which make it easier, in fact, for people to fake and, and to rise in the world, to fake it until they make it. I think you fall... Well, I fall in love with whichever period I'm looking at, but then if I move on to another one, I'm, I'm in love with that then. Um, and it's strange, it gives rise to different kinds of stories and, and, and affects your imagination quite differently. On a, on a practical note, how do you know when you've done enough research to be able to embark on, on the writing? Have you, have you ever done enough research to be able to embark on the writing or did you just have to <laughs> jump in? Research is, just a, is a, um, a terrible diversion because mm. you would never get there. So if you can't get on with the writing, <laughs> you do more research. And you do more research, yes. mm. and you do more research about, um, and you actually, I think it's a matter of self-discipline to stop research. Yes, absolutely, totally. <laughs> yes, it's it's a siren, isn't it? You you can stay you can stay researching for days on end, piling up more and more really fascinating information. It, it, it's great because it avoids you facing the responsibility of writing the novel, and it makes the novel go further away because you're then drowning in this sea of knowledge, and actually, you're probably better to do a rough little plot and then hang your research yes. on it instead of which you're. You know, yes. you know, I, I, I can't believe there's a historical novelist who doesn't nearly you know, suffocate themselves with their research. When I was writing the first novel, it started at an Arvon course and Peter Lively was one of the tutors there. And No, sorry, Adam Lively was one of the tutors there. And he said, you know, write the novel first and then you'll know how much you have to do. Mm. Because I, I was quivering at the thought of all, you know, I knew nothing practically about the period, except that it attracted me. <sighs> You can't do that, I think. You end up researching as you go, but it's good advice anyway. You should aspire to do as little as possible. It's hard because actually if you do lots, then there was no point with Carey that I thought, as I often do with historical writers, gosh, he, was, you know, he must have looked that up. I wonder where he found that out. That was one of his great... I mm. didn't once think, I wonder where he did this research or mm. clever little detail there. Mm -hmm. um, impressed you know, by, a, by another writer. I just went for it um, and I suppose you get to research where you really do know your way around the period like walking around your own hometown mm. the other thing is with the internet 
the slight pressure from the other side is if you make a mistake um you will get one of those lovely emails begins i'm sure you'd like to know <laughs> it's on page 315 so you do know other people will, ch- will check and they do mm. check and mm. they come back Kerry in his author's note says the author willingly admits to having once or twice stretched history to suit his own fictional ends and I suppose that's just part of Kerry's Kerry's little game but he's he's saying that up front I mean is that something that you would likewise subscribe to well otherwise you wouldn't write write a novel would you I I mean stretching history Uh, I I think it's interesting ethically actually in the period I'm writing it's very interesting because clearly you can't completely change history where so many people's lives were changed by something so the big facts have got to stand but the attitudes people had or individuals had to things I think mm. are open I think Carrie is just having fun there he, I mean he knows what he's doing but those those attitude things are difficult aren't they? yes, they're, they're much more difficult to pin down and say say when you know when you have got the attitude right or when you when you're sort of seeing it through a particular modern I, lens. I sat next to a historian I was sat next to Anthony Beaver at a, at a dinner about two weeks ago and he said he he really disliked a lot of fiction because it gave to characters who existed in the first world war certain attributes or i do or speculated or anecdotal that i think he felt were ethically dishonest um and i felt were quite fun and of course that's that's perfectly valid that's why he's writing history Mm. and i'm writing novels but we're doing it all the time aren't we we do it with living people we assume that they're thinking things (laughs) <laughs> you know, we, we're always interpreting and um, creating, really, our relationship with, with living people, let, let alone dead ones. I, I quite admire, I must say, I admire and envy Jim Crace for saying, I didn't research any of this, get over it, it's fiction. I've always thought of that with great longing, because I, I can't do that. I, I try my very hardest to be good and to get it right. But I, I think um, Peter Carey's got it about right here, once or twice stretched history. Yes, yes, that, yes that's, that's it. That's what, I, I want to copy that <laughs> Put it in the front of my next That'd book. Interesting. <laughs> I did it. My very first book was a, um, a history book or biography of a Roman emperor because I was I, I've been doing a PhD that I didn't finish, and um, I alternated a straight history with all the dates and the footnotes and everything with a completely fictional um, narrative from somebody who was supposed to be in retinue. And most people bought it in America. They they bought it a lot, and then just one reviewer was apoplectic about <laughs> what was this? Was this a history book? Or was I writing a novel? Or um, and it really upset them the boundaries being mm. blurred that I blurred the boundaries. Although it's quite mm. clear that's what I was doing. I was just trying to subvert. I mean, what's history? History is not true. It's 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 highly selective. So. It's not. It's not only yes. It's not only highly selective, but none of it's actually happening anymore. I do find this fascinating actually, because if you write novels in which you invent a university town, geographers don't get into a stew about it. <laughs> The sort of furniture in people's heads in the past was very different, sometimes in quite an alienating way, particularly the further you back you go because the whole religious mindset was so was so prominent. And also agency for women was was much more circumscribed than it would be if you're writing a 20th century or a contemporary novel. So how do you how do you deal with those two aspects in your writing? It's a problem. I think the women, for, um, for my, you know, women are doing things, but the women who can you can make into really interesting characters will will have been exceptional, very exceptional women, um, in, in that period. So you're either going to slightly artificially um, tweak things, and and there, some of their attitudes are unacceptable to a degree that I wouldn't be brave enough to put them in a book. I think particularly and, and Julian Grenfell, who wrote. The famous poem into battle, which was the most popular of the first World War poems at the time, um, unlike our appetite for much more melancholy 
poems. Um, he kept a game book and he put pheasant, grouse, and whatever, and then he'd put um, sort of Pomeranians and what's in two Germans, and he put anyone else he'd taken out as he walked around. Now that that would be very hard to mm. then make him a sympathetic character. Mm. I mean, Marie, probably the religion aspect is one that you've grappled with. To, to what extent that that is part of the the mindset? Unless your character is somebody like John Wilkes or some other self-confessed libertine, I don't think you can get away from it. I don't like reading historical novels in which nobody has any religious any any kind of religious awareness at all. It r- rings completely false with me. Most people are going to have some kind of perhaps undeveloped and rudimentary religious sense. Others will be very, very, have a very highly developed sense of it. And at, at the moment, actually, when I'm not reading things to do with work, I'm reading Mary Brunton's Self-Control, not for the first time, which is sort of roughly contemporary with Jane Austen. And her heroine is so highly ethical. It's absolutely astonishing. She is self-denying industrious, unselfish, pious. This sounds as though she's absolutely insufferable, but there is quite a a steely streak in her as well, which makes her likeable. And reading it, you are struck by the impossibility of having such a heroine now. Mm. Um, Even Jane Austen found her, I think, a bit highfalutin. It says on on the back of of, uh, my Pandora edition that Jane Austen wished she could aspire to such heights, but that was probably tongue-in-cheek, I think. Mary Brunton isn't obviously as good a writer as Jane Austen, she hasn't got that craft, she hasn't got that wit, but she's not devoid of wit. And it, it's a really interesting read, I think, for people who are interested in the late 18th century Regency period to see just how religious a heroine could be. And, and she's feisty. Uh, most of my novels have got religious sensibility in them. The, the hero of the first one is... Um, driven by the sense that he's damned and he can't get out of that most of the time. Not so much in the second one, um, but um, the one that came out in November, there is, yes, there is a very religious character, but she has also the repel- some of the repellent attitudes of the day. Um, she's very fond of her superior status, and she speaks and, and thinks in quite a repellent way about the slave boy who has been given to her as a gift by her intended while at the same time um, believing herself to be a sympathetic and caring mistress of stuff, I didn't want to take that out. I don't like reading novels either in which everybody's got modern attitudes because because the authentic ones are thought to be too repellent, but it's difficult. Anti-Semitism is certainly, I mean, that's... Mm. I mean, yeah, mm. And that, that I do see modern novelists going with it, uh, and I suppose assuming that the educated person knows that it's contextual but it's it, it is hard but then you, you do think about ethically good characters and different attitudes I mean Jane Eyre is good I say Angel from is is but also uh, St. John Rivers you know these are characters who are not mm. sympathetic to us because mm. they seem like prigs mm. um, and so how do you how do you mm. how do you make it authentic um, mm. and I was reading reading um, what's um, Sarah Wise's Inconvenient People about madness and she was saying in when Jane Eyre came out Mr Rochester would have been thought to be doing the absolute best he could possibly have done by his wife he would have thought of being mm. a good man who the alternatives were, were terrible and to keep her at home when he could have set her aside somewhere therefore he, he only errs when he drifted to bigamy <laughs> You chose uh, Jack Maggs by Peter Carey as a book to talk about, but I thought just to round off, maybe you could give me another recommendation, another favourite historical novel that you would send listeners off to to read. Um, One that's gone out of fashion now and hardly anybody seems to read, um, but William Golding's Rite Passage. 
I think is the most stupendous novel. I read it when I was doing my MA. Um, I, I did an MA at the University of Glamorgan at the same time as I was writing my first novel. And this is such a towering novel uh, that it left me in awe and I almost stopped writing. <laughs> um, just stupendous. I keep repeating myself. Stupendous, stupendous, stupendous. It's the narrative of a very um, smug, complacent, uh, arrogant man with a, a huge sense of entitlement who's travelling from England to Australia during, the, or it's either during the Napoleonic Wars or during a brief lull in the Napoleonic Wars anyway, but it's around that time. And mysterious events are taking place, which he has no means of understanding. But we have his um, his account of events. He's, he's been put on board to spy on somebody, so we hear something about that. And we also have his account, which is being sent to his patron in England. And he starts off very orderly, um, but he soon loses track of the days or the numbers and um, the chapters start to be headed by arbitrary squiggles and so on. Things break down. And then a man on board dies. I won't say too much about it, but his, um, our narrator discovers his diary. So we discover from his diary we've now got two narratives going that much of what our man thought was actually wrong he has misunderstood things and this is only the beginning of the thickening of, of mystery in the novel it's a, it's actually the first of a trilogy but i think it's the best of the three i love english passengers which is also about i mean voyages and journeys are such a such rich material for, for novelists I think it's wonderful because it's comic you take this boat that's actually smuggling and it's going to the Isle of Man and it ends up going to Australia by mis- sort of by mistake by sort of it's, <laughs> it's the classic sort of clockwise sort of <laughs> slight errors and misjudgments and then trying to save the day um, and slowly it drifts further and, and with these sort of extraordinary characters the terrible sort of racist ethnologist and he invents this entire Manx language um, and where you're not allowed to say the word for pig and and it's a double hulled ship because it's it's full of contraband um, and it's it's just it's beyond it's not farcical it, it, but it's I technically I was just terribly admiring of it but it's very very funny and, and and the crew members with their terrible dialect manx I think you must have had fun with it but um but I think there's again it's going back it's, it's a sort of going back to the 19th century, the idea of the voyage, the changing voyage, I suppose, which is sort of behind Carey as well. My thanks to my guests, Maria McCann and Elizabeth Speller. You can find out more about the Faber Academy by visiting faberacademy.co.uk and you can follow the Academy on Twitter at Faber Academy. I hope you'll join me again soon for the next podcast, but from me for now, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.